You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to the ideas behind restricted Boltzmann machines. Yes, restricted Boltzmann machines, or RBMs. So these are things that have been sort of invented and studied by, um, by Jeff Hinton and colleagues, and they played a big part in the resurgence of interest in neural networks starting in sort of 2006 to 2008 or so because they were a really nice foundational element for doing layer-wise pre-training of big, deep neural networks. The basic idea of an RBM is to be a complicated probability distribution, typically over binary values, but, the, uh, but they can also be over real numbers and other kinds of interesting, um, interesting things. So first, let's talk about Boltzmann machines before we talk about restricted Boltzmann machines. So a Boltzmann machine is basically a collection of uh, coupled random variables. So let's focus on them being binary random variables. And if you're a physicist, you can think of this exactly as being like a spin glass model or, a, uh, or an icing model. That is to say, it's a big collection of, of say binary random variables. So they can be zero or one. And uh, if we think of it like a graphical model, they have edges between, um, between them. And so there's some probability of each one of them being zero versus one. And then there's a coupling um, between them so that given that one of them is zero and there's a positive weight, then maybe the one next to it also wants to be zero and so on. And so the, uh, uh, so the different sort of ed weights along the edges determine what the collection wants to be. And the way this is specified is via an energy function who that, which then produces a distribution via the Gibbs distribution. So think of this energy function as basically a kind of a score of how much uh, any given configuration of these binary variables, uh, sort of how happy it is. Um, and this is determined by all of these little weights between all of the binary variables. And then when we want to turn that into a probability distribution, we say, uh, you know, e to the negative energy, and then we normalize that so that all the sum over all the configurations, uh, that sums to one. So, um, so this is kind of an interesting thing to do, because if you have a bunch of binary data, then you could try to fit a Boltzmann uh, a Boltzmann machine to it as a way to represent the possibly complicated distribution over these binary variables. In general, this is a really hard thing to do because that partition function, that sum over all the configurations that you have to know in, in, order, to, uh, in order to learn is very, very difficult to compute. So you're gonna have to do something else to try to get uh, an estimate of it. And one common kind of thing to do is to sample from the, uh, is to sample from the model and then use that as an estimate, uh, use the gradient of that as an estimate of the partition function. The details are, are a little bit, um, you know, are a little bit complicated in some ways, but the gist of it is basically this. We're gonna be presented with an example, and then what we're going to do, we're gonna take examples that are sort of our positive data, and then we're going to also generate samples using Marco Chain Monte Carlo from the RBM and use those as kind of negative data. And, what, and the situation is such that we're gonna be happiest whenever the stuff that we sample from the model looks most like the stuff, uh, like our actual data. And that's kind of an intuitive thing. So as long as our model thinks the data looks different than it really does, then we're gonna keep training. Hmm. The trick though is that it's necessary to, uh, to sample efficiently from the model. And that can be really hard. Typically in something like an icing model, what you do is you take one of the binary variables at a time and update it given the rest and, and you'd iterate that. And often that can mix really slowly, particularly when you have a lot of, uh, when, you, when you've learned sort of very large weights from some data, then it might, you know, it might take a really long time to mix. And by mix, I just mean how long does it take for us to forget our initial conditions and produce a, uh, produce a sample from the, from the model. The, uh, 
the restricted Boltzmann machine is a specialized version of the um, of the general Boltzmann machine. So a Boltzmann machine can have edges, you know, can have weights between any of the variables. What a restricted Boltzmann machine does is it divides all of the binary variables into two sets. There's going to be what we call visible ones and ones we call hidden ones. And we're only going to have edges between, you know, from hidden to visible and vice versa. So you can think of this as forming now a bipartite graph. That just means that none of the visibles connect to each other and none of the hiddens connect to each other. And this has the sort of convenient property that it induces conditional independence between the hiddens given the visibles and vice versa. And that means you can now Gibbs sample a lot faster. You just sort of slosh back and forth between the hiddens and the visibles, updating them all, um, them all at the same time. So that's, that's cool. It also changes the way we can think about the distribution. So now when we present it with a bunch of binary data, we're only going to consider the distribution, sort of the marginal distribution over the visibles. And by allowing some hidden variables to exist, then it sort of gets extra capacity that it might not have gotten before. Jeff likes to talk of this, talk about this as being a kind of mixture model, but with an exponential number of mixtures rather than just a linear number of mixtures. Now that's sort of hiding the fact that these these mixtures are very closely related to each other and have a very complicated a very complicated distribution, but that's the general intuition is that what we're doing is building a kind of latent variable model where these hidden units are now trying to reflect patterns in the data, maybe coherent pixels that all come on together at the same time or things like that. The way this fits into sort of the broader uh, sort of the broader world of deep learning is that now we have this little object that is capable of learning distributions and representing them in a little bit simpler way, kind of finding interesting feature representations and compressions in a single layer represented by um, the weights going from the visibles to the hiddens. And we have a very clear sort of inductive principle for training it because it's a probabilistic model. So then we can train the weights given some data. And what you discover is that these make very nice little sort of uh, hidden layers for multi-layer perceptrons because the conditional distribution over the hiddens given the visibles is exactly the same as we would do in a traditional kind of neural network. That is to say, we apply a linear transformation and then we apply uh, essentially logistic sigmoid units to that. And so what happens is that you learn a set of weights that kind of makes a good little neural network if you just look at it kind of uh, as projecting in one dimension. What Jeff and, and other folks like Iwate and Simon Ozendero sort of figured out um, in about 2006 was that you could stack a whole sequence of these things and they would each perform little feature transformations on the stuff they were handed in. And that would provide a really nice initialization for a, uh, for a much larger neural network. And it was actually this insight and this pre-training that caused people in some ways to start revisiting these uh, ideas of neural networks that has now exploded into what we, what we now call deep learning. But, um, but the original sort of agenda was to figure out how to, uh, how to make multilayer perceptrons easier to train. This approach to things has kind of fallen out of fashion. And in some ways, people uh, really conflate the idea of convolutional neural networks with deep learning more broadly. Um, but of course, originally, people like Jeff were much more interested in thinking about neural networks that didn't need to know about, say, convolutional structure. RBMs, I think, are a really nice model. They're, they're kind of hard to train. They don't necessarily want to work that well because there are lots of different weight configurations that um, cause them to not correspond to, to sort of useful probability distributions. And it, this gets particularly bad whenever they, you try to use them for continuous values and things like that. But they kind of uh, pop up every now and then in interesting, as interesting ways to think about complicated distributions. You can find more about restricted Boltzmann machines on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Mm -hmm.
This week's question on Talking Machines is about tuning hyperparameters. Hi, my name is Grace Lindsay. I'm a PhD student in computational neuroscience at Columbia University, and I have a question about hyperparameter choice, in particular how to automate the process of choosing hyperparameters. So when you're working with things like deep nets, most of the parameters are fit using the data, but then obviously there's still choices left to be made by the experimenter, usually things related to the architecture of the network and that kind of thing. And I know that there are ways to automate this process of choosing the best hyperparameter. And I was wondering if you had inputs on the best methods for that and how they compare to just trial and error from the experimenter. Thanks. This is a great question. This is something that is very near and dear to my heart. And uh, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and and um, exploring different methods for it. And you're absolutely right. This is this question of hyperparameter tuning and architecture choice is an incredibly important one to getting reasonable performance. And there's a variety of ways that you can imagine tackling it. I think the main thing um, is to systematize it. The, uh, you know, the, the idea, uh, I mean, so the first thing you have to do is decide what it means to be good at the problem that you care about and to try to measure the generalization performance associated with any given set of the parameters you choose. So a very typical way to do that is to use something like cross-validation or have a held-out validation set where you can then train a model based on the training data uh, for a given set of hyperparameters and then evaluate its performance on this on a validation set or through cross-validation so that you can get a sense of how well those hyperparameters generalize for the problem that you care about. Once you've done that, then you're faced with an optimization problem. And it may be a very hard optimization problem for a variety of reasons. For one, it may be very difficult to uh, evaluate any given uh, setting of the hyperparameters. That is, if you have to train a big model and it takes a couple of days or a couple of weeks, then um, you know you're going to have to be you're going to want to be very deliberate about the the hyperparameters you select. It may also be very difficult because it may be a complicated and non-convex problem. So it may be hard to reason about or visualize, if, particularly if it's of even moderate moderately high dimensions. Um, I think it's very hard for humans to even think about non-convex uh, surfaces in more than like three dimensions, for example. So the, the, parameter, the parameterization doesn't have to be that high uh, for it to already become challenging for a human to navigate. Uh, and then finally, as you mentioned, architecture may, uh, may be a big factor in this. And so on one hand, you have you know, continuous and say integer valued uh, hyperparameters that you can tune and that are very familiar to traditional sort of um, optimization uh, type problems, but then you also have these much more complicated uh, things going on, like, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, like, what is the actual architecture, say, of a deep neural network? And these kinds of choices may not really map very well onto traditional, uh, traditional optimization tasks. So then there's a the question of what do you do now that you've framed the problem as one of, uh, that allows you to evaluate architectures and hyperparameters, and your, um, you know, and you're now going to treat it as an optimization problem that whose answer you, you believe, then the question is how do you do that optimization? My favorite method for this is to use the method of Bayesian optimization. So Bayesian optimization is the idea of using a, a probabilistic model to model the surface and to then do a little more work than we would normally do to decide what points to evaluate next. Broadly speaking, the idea of Bayesian optimization is to leverage the model to um, assess the potential quality, the sort of expected utility, if you will, of some new point that you've never seen before. In this case, the sort of potential behind some new, uh, some new hyperparameter setting. And the hope is that by being very smart about selecting points about which you're very optimistic, 
then you can take advantage of this limited number of, uh, of evaluations. And this has been successful for a, for a lot of different problems. And um, it, you know, the, the downside of it is that it, it doesn't, you know, it's much harder to figure out how to do this in the sort of architecture space relative to, 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 uh, to continuous values. Um, but other things you might consider, so you might consider something like grid search. This is a very common kind of a method that's effective in very low dimensions, but becomes, um, becomes pretty hard in even sort of modest dimensions because of the exponential uh, increase in the number of points as a function of dimension. And then also random search. And random search is a really interesting thing because um, on one hand, it, it seems very dumb, but, uh, but in higher and higher dimensions, the modeling advantage that we get from Bayesian optimization, we would expect that to sort of, uh, to sort of decrease. And so there's been some interesting work in thinking about the effectiveness of, of, uh, of random search. I think in most of these practical problems, Bayesian optimization still wins, but, um, but sometimes there's some advantage in being able to implement something that, that you know, really doesn't take much work to think about. Um, so I think those are the kind of the two ways most people are thinking about it now. The other thing I should say is that this problem is so hard that I think the, this, the advantages of modeling are really, you know, really do start to stand out. And uh, on one hand, you may have a problem that you're solving in isolation, but it's going to be most interesting uh, and most realistic in some ways if you're really actually solving a collection of problems. You solve one problem today, but tomorrow you're going to have to tune the hyperparameters for a different problem. And the question is, how can we, uh, how can we share information across tasks over time so that the next problem we solve, we sort of start out, um, you know, start out sort of right away with good values. Now, obviously, one version of that is where uh, you store information in your brain and you build better intuition over time. But that doesn't really, but that probably won't work in higher dimensions as it becomes hard to reason about these problems. And as we've seen over and over again, people's intuitions about complicated systems um, can, uh, you know, can be misleading. And so one of the advantages of thinking about modeling relative to random search and, and other methods is this idea that we have a very clear way to share information over time across different problems. So the short answer is um, that there's a couple different methods out there, but Bayesian optimization, I think, is, is my favorite. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Eric Lander, one of the heads of the Human Genome Project and now the head of the Broad Institute, which is a collaboration between MIT and Harvard. And we really wanted to talk to Eric to get his view on the use of machine learning for biological questions and how he's seen huge amounts of data really change the way that biology operates and asks questions today. So when I sat down with him at the Broad a couple of weeks ago, the first question I asked him is, what's his path been to where he is now? How did he get where he is? Well, it's a, it's a long shaggy dog story, but I grew up as a kid in, in Brooklyn, New York, and somehow got interested in mathematics and went to New York City's wonderful public math science school, Stuyvesant High School, took the train in every day, uh, and fell in with the math team. It was so cool. It met at 8 o'clock in the morning for an hour, and it was, it was run by the students, and uh, it was, it was, you know, it was a high school where the math team was more important than the football team, which is not that common in America. Uh, and so uh, we, we met, we did problems every day, uh, and I just loved it. My senior year, I was captain of the math team and so was in charge of organizing all this. So I just loved mathematics. Um, when I went to, to undergraduate at Princeton, I majored in math. Um, 
I, it was a great place for mathematics, and I, I worked on algebraic number theory, and then on the side did all sorts of crazy things, wrote for the newspaper, got involved in political polls and things, but fundamentally did mathematics. I went to graduate school, uh, ended up at Oxford, and did my, my DPhil in mathematics, algebraic combinatorics, group representation theory, applied to coding theory, and all. had a wonderful time, wrote a thesis about that, and yet in the back of my mind, all the way along, I knew that as a career, I didn't want to do pure mathematics. Because pure mathematics, which I love and is so beautiful, is something of a monastic career, and I'm not such a good monk. I'm just more interested in, oh, the connections with the rest. So at the, as, in my last year of graduate school, I was really kind of wondering and wandering and began to think about what could I do that could bring my, my, my love of mathematics to the world more generally, and by a series of accidents, as happens at those ages, um, got a connection to someone called Howard Rafe at the Harvard Business School who had started decision analysis. And pretty much on the strength of one very good lunch with some of the faculty, they offered me a job teaching managerial economics on the faculty of the Harvard Business School. Must have been an amazing lunch. Must have been a good lunch. <laughs> Go figure. And I taught MBA students for a couple of years, and I enjoyed it, and I, I did a good job teaching. But I also knew pretty soon that I didn't want to do that as a career either because I felt that some of the amazing beauty and depth of mathematics wasn't there. And so I cast about further and through some more accidents ended up falling into biology at the suggestion of my younger brother who is a developmental biologist, an actual one. And I began moonlighting around Harvard in labs, sitting in on some random courses, beginning to do some work with fruit flies and things. And one thing led to another and I got captivated by genetics. Uh, I guess originally I was interested in the brain, but I realized to understand the brain, I had to understand cells. And I understood cells, I had to understand molecular biology. And to understand molecular biology, I had to understand genetics. And genetics appealed to me tremendously as a mathematician. So I began learning genetics. And after a couple of years, I somehow, the business school kindly uh, gave me a, a year's leave, which I used to come down to MIT and uh, worked with some geneticists here. And one day after a seminar, I met David Botstein, who was an amazing yeast geneticist, but who had made an important discovery in human genetics about how you might be able to map the genes responsible for human diseases without knowing what they were in advance by using correlations of inheritance patterns. David comes from the Bronx. I come from Brooklyn. We immediately fell to arguing with each other. That's the mode of communication, the thing that borrows of New York. And uh, we, we got really, really interested in could you extend these ideas from mapping the, gene, the genes responsible for simple monogenic genetic disorders to really complex things. And I pretty much dropped everything I was doing and uh, began to get to work on that problem. Within 12 months, the idea of a human genome project was being brooded about. And by total dumb luck, the three things that I had by that point a background in mathematics, already several years of background in biology, and actually some experience hanging out teaching at a business school where they thought about management, turned out to be the perfect recipe for working on the Human <laughs> Genome Project. How serendipitous. Zero planning involved. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I, I was swept up in the idea in 1985, 86, that maybe we could get all this big information. You got to realize that back then, 
biologists didn't think about information. The, the world's leading biologist of his generation, in my opinion, David Baltimore, when he built the Whitehead Institute in 1982-83, made no provisions for a computer in it. At the last moment, as they were finishing up the building, they said, maybe we should have a computer room. And they put one in. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> but you know, he was not, it's not like he was behind the times. No, that of was course, the way right. you thought about it. Yeah. What data meant in biology was what you wrote down in your lab notebook. Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. idea that you would be connected to somebody else's lab notebook or to a million lab notebooks just was inconceivable. Or that you would even need a million lab notebooks to record the amount of data that you have. Exactly. All of that was inconceivable around the time I was making the transition. And yet somehow, I guess I felt, as one does in one's 20s, that the world was going to change. You couldn't say how. I, and, and, and I think it's been just amazing to live through the transformation from biology being a science that's only about small data to being biology to being a science that's about vast amounts of big data and almost no major papers fail to use large data in biology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk more about that. Yeah. So, so the Human Genome Project, really the original big data project in biology, so, and how have you seen both the field and the work here at the Broad change with this just explosion of availability of data and sources for biological data? Well, what a great question. Um, I, I actually came and uh, brought along a um, editorial that appeared in Nature in 1986 when people were, were rooting about the idea of a human genome project. Uh, and it's really indicative of what what people were thinking then and uh, just how foreign this whole notion was. I'll, I'll read just a little bit of it where, where they, they say, um, this, this is the biology editor of Nature. You know, nobody seems to doubt it's, it's feasible, but they're saying, but, you know, technical innovations, they're already occurring with such impressive momentum. And as an information resource, the human genome is an extremely doubtful asset. If the skill and ingenuity of modern biology are already being stretched to interpret the sequence, uh, sequences of, of known importance, such as genes like DMD and CGD, what possible use could be made of more sequences? It's inconceivable today that you would say that, but, but you have to put yourself back in the mindset that biology then said, we're going to learn pebble by pebble. We're going to pick up this brilliant pebble, this gene, and understand this gene. And then we're going to get the next gene and the next gene. And eventually we'll learn biology that way. The idea that a complementary approach is to look at the big picture and see the things that emerge at scale just wasn't even in the, in the vocabulary back in 1986. You know, there's, there's a lot you can learn about geography by being walking around down on the ground. But when you get up to you know, outer space and you look down, you see that South America fits into Africa and continental drift. And there are things you see at scale and things you see in the individual pebbles. And they're both important. It's that shift in all the projects. The Human Genome Project was the first one. It, it met all this resistance that, well, why would we want all these, what possible use could be made of all these sequences? But it's been a whole string of projects along the way that have opened up our eyes and we're always amazed at new ways that you can gather data and use data. So I think in some sense my, my whole career has been about that, that arc 
that change in biology. So, you know, started, of course, with that problem that I talked about with David Botstein, the basis of common human genetic diseases. Uh, how are you going to find what causes early heart attacks, Alzheimer's, uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disease? You, you pick it. Schizophrenia. Um, the fact that they don't follow a simple one-gene inheritance pattern really put off people in biology. But in, in fact, actually, if you say, hey, just give me a million genetic variants across the entire human genome so I can be tracing everything, and not just through a family, but because they're so densely packed, I can trace back for many, 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 many generations and, in fact, treat a whole population as if it was a family. Recognize little chunks of the human genome as being ancestrally the same across very distant people. So then I can begin to look at, at some very large matrix whose columns are all these genetic variants across the genome, whose rows are all these different people. And I've got one matrix of people who might have a disease and a matrix of people who don't have a disease and ask, what's different between these two? And I'm looking for a multivariate explanation of that. There's local correlation structures. So, I mean, obviously, to do this, you'd need to have millions of genetic variants. You'd need to have worked out their whole local correlation structure. You'd need to be able to test those millions of genetic variants and thousands and thousands of people to produce billions and billions of data points. And this was all considered roughly insane even in the late 90s. But within five or six years, all that had gotten done. It was totally feasible to get millions of genetic variants out of thousands of people. And we could begin to see that these complex diseases had many different genes underlying them. They had small contributions from many things. So there's a lot of beautiful work that's, that's occurred in, say, schizophrenia, where more than 100 different regions of the human genome have been identified. And I, you know, I won't go into all of that, but there's just I, I still remain very excited and work on the ways to find common genetic variants, rare genetic variants, and, and dissect the basis of disease, explain what the genetic contribution is. There's even been a, a couple of really interesting papers in the past couple of weeks where people have been recalculating what fraction of the diseases are genetics and what fraction are environment. And what we're beginning to see is that the explanations from genes we can point to directly or indirectly are beginning to sort of approach the upper bound of how much has to be explained. So you can even imagine those are going to kind of begin to converge and we're going to have a pretty good picture. So that's exciting. But then there are the surprises. Not just finding the basis of disease, but when you have a lot of genetic markers scattered across the human genome, you can pick up other weirdnesses. Suppose some genetic change occurred 6,000 years ago that was very good for somebody. Maybe it let them digest milk as an adult. Usually, humans, you know, mammals turn off the gene for digest, digesting milk after they're weaned. But, you know, suppose that gene continued to get expressed during, uh, during your life, you'd be able to drink milk. And if, if one was beginning to have agriculture and settlement and farming, the ability to drink milk could be an advantage. Well, that genetic change might sweep through the entire population. When it did so, it would lead a leave a data signature. The data signature is, as it was selected, everything nearby would be swept along for the ride. And so the frequencies would all rise across a region, and the size of the region would tell you how old that event is. 
because the further you were away, the more randomization would occur, the closer you were. And so the story I just told you is what happened. 6,000 years ago, there was a mutation. We know the particular letter in the human genome. We know where it was selected. It occurred in Europe. Oh, and by the way, there was another independent event that, that occurred in East Africa with the Maasai who also drink milk. So we can read those things out. And in fact, hundreds of such stories across the human genome have now been found because it turns out the breadcrumbs have been left in the data. So we can pick those things out of the human genome. And of course, you know, a beautiful example of that is looking at many such breadcrumbs, you can look about the mixing of populations, about how India was populated and beautiful work that Nick Patterson here at the Broad has done. And of course, the mixing with Neanderthal and, and Homo sapiens. So again, having lots of data allows you to pick up amazing signatures that are there. So then there's go beyond the human genome. What if we look at more distant relatives than Neanderthal? What if we look at chimpanzees and gibbons and dogs and mice and the 5,000 different species of mammals, all of whom radiated from a common ancestor about 100 million years ago or so? In a way, there was an experiment that was started 100 million years ago with one ancestral mammal, and it had one genome. And as it descended down the paths over 100 million years, according to some tree structure here, random events occurred, and then non-random selection occurred on those events. How much could we learn from that large data set of all the species of, of mammals and lining them up? Well, it turns out a tremendous amount. Uh, not long after the Human Genome Project was done, we sequenced together with a couple of groups the mouse genome. And by lining up the human and the mouse, we could find that the distribution of conservation, preservation of sequence across the genome was very non-random. There, there were important regions that you might expect, the sequences of proteins that were very well conserved, and that's because they're biologically very important. You change them, it's bad news for the organism. But then it turned out there were lots and lots of sequences of the human genome that weren't in regions that encoded proteins and, re and, and didn't have any known function. But they were clearly much better preserved than the background rate. So if you just look at the distribution of conservation, you can see there's a fat right tail. And just by comparing that distribution, looking at how fat that right tail is, you could infer that 5 or 6% of the entire human genome must be under functional selection. Even though we didn't know what it was, we knew that it, it, it had to exist, and we knew that as we got more species, we could pin down exactly where those were. And this is a perfect example of an inference from big data that you never have gotten looking stone by stone. You'd find a stone here and say, oh, wow, that's conserved, that looks nice. But only looking across all the organisms, do you see the distribution, you say, no, there's actually more of this non-coding, we now think a lot of it is regulatory material, and it totally turned our worldview upside down. Our textbook picture was a gene had the instructions for a protein and a little bit of regulation. It's now pretty much the reverse. The instructions for the protein are three or four-fold smaller than the regulation that the genome has to make those proteins run. And as we begin to understand it, we realize that's because mammals don't differ so much in the genes that they have, they differ in the regulation of those genes. You wanna make a mouse, you wanna make an elephant, it might be how long you leave on the bone growth gene, for example. That's not one gene, but anyway, you get the point. So all those things emerge from big data looking. 
And then, of course, they point to specific things. You can go back to the lab and do experiments on those specific things. So the conversation between big data and targeted experiment began. And that feedback loop has been driving biology just wonderfully. But then it's not just uh, the inherited genome that we all have or that other species have. Same thing is, is the case in thinking about cancer. When a cancer arises in a body, it does so because one cell has a mutation that causes it to grow more. And it grows more. And then one of its descendant cells may have another mutation and another. And eventually, that thing is off to the races, growing and growing, and becomes a tumor. How could we figure out which genes matter for cancer? Well, the traditional approach had been study the genes one at a time, isolate a gene that matters. But in the early 2000s, it became possible to conceive of an alternative approach. Just get the genome of lots and lots of tumors. Actually, in every case, we want to get a genome of a tumor and of the normal DNA from the same person so that we can do a diff on the sequence and figure out what are the changes that are unique to the tumor. On average, it's about one letter in a million change, although for some cancers it's tenfold higher or 50-fold higher, and some it's a little lower, but I think about one in a million. As you begin to collect that across many different tumors, you can begin to ask, where are the mutations enriched? Which are the cancer genes? And in an utterly unbiased, big data way, you can infer the genes that must be driving cancer. Now, there are a bunch of footnotes to that statement that I won't worry about too much, like we don't actually know that the background model is IID for mutations. It's not uniform. And there are a whole bunch of tricks that have to be developed to, to be able to fit a non-uniform model so that you can see the signal on top of that non-uniform model. But all that stuff is done, and Getty gets here at the Broad has done a lot of those beautiful things. So the signal begins to emerge, and lots of genes. There are now a couple of hundred cancer genes that have emerged, many by simply looking at the sequence. And it turned out many of them are different than the genes that had been found at the wet bench. The wet bench had found certain genes that were, oh, cell growth signaling receptors. But now there's all sorts of other genes that are emerging that do very different things in the cell, control gene regulation in certain ways, et cetera. So again, an unbiased way of looking for the answer to the question often produces very different answers to the question. So now people with cancer, I mean, around the road, Todd Golub, my colleague, and, and Levi Garraway and Matthew Meyerson and others around the road have in their mind the idea that we could create a complete cancer therapeutic roadmap. What would that mean? It would mean we would have a big data set such that when a patient comes to see a physician, and God forbid they have cancer, you could first read out the sequence of the cancer and recognize which genetic changes were driving the cancer. That's just step one. But you could also look at it and say, which places in the genome could you hit that cancer, conditional on its genotype, in order to kill it? And for that, a different type of big data experiment has been so powerful. Things like gene editing, these CRISPR experiments where you can, in parallel, knock out all 20,000 genes in the genome and see if which ones cause a cell to drop dead. So imagine a big matrix. Rows, a thousand different cancer cell lines. Columns, the 20,000 genes that you knock out and see which ones cause which cancers to drop dead. And can we then infer, aha, 
cancers that have this feature are sensitive to inhibiting that gene. And you can begin to make that lookup table. And you can even go further and say, okay, if you hit the cancer at that spot, how will it play the next chess move by mutating to become resistant and build a resistance map? And then you play our move, which is, and how do we combine the places to hit it such that resistance is futile? That any one of those moves you could resist against, but by making three moves, that is, say, combining three drugs. Anyway, you get the point. We now think about cancer as, at least in a significant measure, a big data problem. And the frustration is not having all the big data. Why don't we have all the big data? Sadly, one of the reasons is non-technical. It's because we let it go to waste. We don't have a way of capturing information. We don't have a way of turning our healthcare system into a learning system. Because this has to go far beyond what would take place in a lab bench experiment. We actually have to look at tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients eventually and see how they respond to drugs, how their tumors mutate. And we haven't had ways to capture and aggregate those data, largely because electronic medical records don't talk to each other. Most patients want to share their data. They want to do it with proper security and all that. But most patients with cancer, the primary thing on their mind isn't the security questions. The primary thing on their mind is fighting back against cancer, whether it's going to help them or help other people. So folks around the road, uh, Nick Wagley and Corey Painter, started an amazing project, a metastatic breast cancer project, where they built a web-based approach to reach out to people all over the United States with metastatic breast cancer. And individual groups working in individual places had never been able to collect enough patients to really study it. But now, in the course of just a few months, they were able to get some 2,500 people already in just the opening phase. In the previous three years, they had managed to get 100 people in Boston. In, in, a, in a matter of, of five, six months, they got 2,500 people, and it's still growing and growing. I imagine a world where every cancer patient has the right and the ability to share their data if they want to, where when they go into the doctor, there's a checkbox. Count me in. I wish to share my data under circumstances that will protect privacy and other, but I want my data shared. I think it's an affirmative right we have because the truth is, while some of these data sets can be constructed in the lab, and we're doing lots of them here at the Broad, many of them really involve patient experiences. And if we're going to turn the healthcare system into a learning system, patients are going to have to drive that. So, you know, that's another example. I could go on with examples of, of how gene expression, questions of which genes are controlled by which of these regulatory elements that I was talking about before. The genome has 20,000 genes, but it's got a million regulatory elements scattered about. Who's connected to whom? Well, there are now cool big data experiments to collect that information, to kind of freeze the genome in place. It's not done by freezing, but chemical cross-linking. Chop it up into little bits and figure out which pieces of DNA are nearby in 3D space places that aren't nearby in 1D space, that is, which have been folded. So suppose I give you an adjacency matrix in 3D space. I have a, I have a one-dimensional interval, which I've folded up into 3D space, you know, shades of Hilbert curves and things like that. I, I cross-link it into place. I cut it. I now glue it together in sequence, and I see all the little local connections. Can I infer the 3D geometry from all the little local connections? The answer is yes. There was, this, there was a postdoctoral fellow here in my lab, Erez Lieberman Aiden, 
who worked out a way. It's called high C, like the drink. He likes puns. Um, I won't go into the shaggy dog story where that came from. But now it's possible to look at the 3D structure of the nucleus and ask, who's talking to whom? And which regulators are nearby which genes? And you can begin to make a map of what are the kind of control connections within the nucleus. I think over the next five or six years, being able to make those maps and then go in and interfere with those maps. You have a hypothesis that regulator X is controlling gene Y. Well, now there are ways to send something in that'll shut down regulator X and see if it has an effect. And there's even folks around in my lab who are very excited about the idea that the genome is broken up into regions and that maybe just proximity plus a few other features can get you a pretty good description of how regulation is working. Whether that turns out to be right, I'm sure it, that's an oversimplification, but what's happening is we're, we're now thinking about build, building global models for the first time, really just in the past three, four, five months. There's students in my lab who are thinking about, could we build a pretty good global model that explains how anything controls anything based on proximity and a few other things? And how much of the picture could we explain with that? Biology always has the tails layered on top. You'll never explain everything. But that's another example. And I know on a previous podcast, you had Aviv Regev on. And I mean, Aviv is, is a hero of mine. And the whole notion of being able to look at every cell in the human and ask which genes are turned on and off, that is 20,000 genes, each is expressed at some quantitative level. Every cell is a vector in 20,000-dimensional space. Take the entire human body, project all its cells in 20,000-dimensional space. Do that for lots of people. What can we learn from that data set? I think the answer is turning out to be a huge amount. Learning every cell type in the body, the trajectories of how one type goes to another type, the states of a cell within a cell type. It's just, I, I think this human cell atlas is the human genome project for this generation. So, you know, the, the sweep from, say, 1986 to 2016, what is that, 30 years? 30 years is not a lot. I think biology is unrecognizable today. Unrecognizable. The, the reagents that you would use 30 years ago were the reagents in your lab, and the information you would use was, was the information in your lab notebook. Everything's gotten connected to everything. Every, this, this wonderful feedback, figure out a new way to generate massive amounts of data, combine it with all the other data, come up with an analytical method to see something nobody's seen before. It's suddenly the case that biology has a massive need for people who think about data science. We are underserved by a factor of pick a number 20-fold in terms of the number of people we need to come into this field. I'll mention one other thing because it, it, it's a point of real resonance for me. This only works because you can combine the data. It was not a given that that was going to be the case. When the Human Genome Project was going, right near the end, a private company started called Solera Genomics that had a very different model. The model was they were going to sequence the human genome and put it behind a paywall. And they argued that it was going to be much more efficient for businesses to produce 
pieces of biological knowledge because they could pay for it and then uh, they could pay for producing it and then they could recoup their efforts by putting it behind a paywall. And we fought tooth and nail, the Human Genome Project, the international project, tooth and nail against this notion. And we argued at the time, and boy, did we turn out to be right, that the problem with that was you wouldn't be able to combine all the layers. It would be as if you had you know, Google Maps and one person had the map, a different person had the traffic, somebody else had the pizzerias. and, and You'd be stuck in picking up little pebbles and no one would be, be able to talk up, to each other. It would be layers. You know, it wouldn't just be pebbles, it would be layers. Mm-hmm. But the layers couldn't talk to each mm-hmm. other. By having open data that's combinable, suddenly all those cross-relationships emerge. So I think one of the most important events occurred around 2000, and 2000 2001, when that fight took place, is whether, whether or not this was going to be open data or whether this was going to be proprietary data. I'm not opposed to proprietary things. I'm all in favor of biotechnology companies. There are times proprietary data is fine. But when you're talking about a public good like the human genome, or the mutations that drive cancer, or the history of our species, it's just plain criminal to put these things behind paywalls. And so biology got this right. We have the problem now. What are we going to do with all these data? How are we going to buy? Only because we got that right, and, and we saw as a field that we were going to need to do it. Now, we never realized how fast it was going to go. The idea that sequencing today is about three million fold cheaper than when we finished the Human Genome Project, we never imagined. That we'd never be able to store our own data in our own laboratories, we never imagined that we'd all be living in the cloud. Or that running around the Broad Institute, we'd, have, we'd not have just a handful of computational people, but hundreds and hundreds of people. And I predict in the next, oh, I don't know, decade, you won't be able to be a biologist without at least also being, at least in part, computational person. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to the young graduate student who is fascinated by um, quantitative uh, biology, but sort of doesn't know where to go? Do you start with the math first or the biology first? How do you build your own layers of understanding? Well, I think people naturally have something that fascinates them. And you should follow your passions. If you were like I was, a mathematician, interested in mathematics and things, Start with the thing you're passionate about. If you love working at the lab bench, start there. Because because passion is what sustains you in any of this. But happily now, as opposed to years ago, you can do both of these at the same time. Have one thing you really care about, but force yourself to go jump in the other pool. Uh, it's possible. Now, people coming from mathematics will find that biology has a very large number of definitions and few theorems. That's certainly the observation that that you make there. Um, But you have to embrace it because biologists are smart. They know what they're doing. Um, So people fail when they come as a mathematician and say, I want to turn biology into mathematics. Uh, Many people have failed. They they want the theorem that explains this. It's messy. It's not deductive. Um, Nothing is true in biology in the way it's true in mathematics. Conversely, uh, biologists often really don't understand what mathematics is about. I, uh, you know, it's a, it's an old observation that it's hard to learn mathematics later in life. I don't quite know why, but, but it certainly seems to be the case. And yet the best biologists increasingly have a respect for abstraction. 
Abstraction doesn't often work so well in biology, but abstraction is the lifeblood of mathematics and computation. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to strip away a whole bunch of things to keep something. You know, all models are wrong, some are useful. And that's, that's what you've got to do. And so what there is now is at least the generation growing up who are deeply rooted in one, passionate about one, and yet respect the other culture and eventually absorb those cultures. And when you really know that both are important ways of seeing the world and making progress, then it's really powerful. Because when you can deploy both of those points of view, when the details matter, the, the, as, as, as the famous expression goes, a feeling for the organism matters. And when abstraction is useful, if you have both of those things, you are so powerful at making progress. So to a young person, I would say, make sure you learn those two ways of thought. Make sure you learn the tools to be able to do that and that you can go back and forth between them because this next generation, well, I, I think we've arrived at this promised land of data that back in 1986, we can only distantly see as, as a shore off in the fog. We're there and it's a vast continent. And there's room for lots and lots of people on that continent. And I think, thinking of that continent, a lot of your work and a lot of the work of the Broad has sort of existed on this, on this edge between um, pushing things forward in new and incredible and unusual ways and hope and inspiration. How do you balance expectation with the reality of the research? Well, I think that's a really important question. I made a big point at the time of the Human Genome Project to say that the fruits of the Genome Project were going to be seen in timescales of 20 years, 30 years, because there's a certain tendency, I think it's a natural tendency that, that science journalists have and some scientists have to want to promise that you're going to get the results now. Uh, I think that's, that's really bad. You lose trust if you promise more than you can deliver. On the other hand, even if the results in the short term turn out to be less than people might want, the results in the long term usually turn out to be much huger. The timescales in biology for true revolution are sometimes 60 years. Take infectious disease. When people found out that infectious disease was caused by microorganisms, that was a major breakthrough, and it didn't save any lives yet. 60 years later, you have penicillin, and then soon cheap penicillin and lots of antibiotics, and then suddenly people aren't dying of infectious disease in the first world very much. But it took that whole arc. When Nixon declared war on cancer in 1970, the notion that we were going to get to the end of cancer in 10 years like we got to the moon in 10 years was nuts. We didn't actually know what cancer was about. But go look at what's happened since then. We now do know what cancer is about. There are hundreds, five, six, seven hundred drugs in development. There are people working on combinations. It will take another 25, 30 years before we reach the point that much of cancer becomes a tractable disease. And then only if we keep working incredibly hard. But if we have an arc where over 60, 70 years we've converted cancer into a tractable disease, we don't have to apologize for it. And therefore, we don't have to claim it's going to happen next quarter or next year. The thing is, when we do something like that, we do it for all time. It is going to take the work of a few generations. It is going to render those diseases understandable first. 
treatable in some ways, eventually tractable in most, not all cases. I have no problem with, with saying realism is inspiring. It is, in fact, much more inspiring than a magic bullet will appear that will solve this in five years. We can't deliver on it. There was a time, actually, well, I, I, you know, there was someone who said, we're going to cure cancer by the year 2015. Uh, you know, I was opposed to that statement then. There was no chance it was going to happen, and it only erodes trust. I think if we're honest about the fact that deep understanding of knowledge changes the world, well, it's the same in computers. You think about Johnny von Neumann making a computer and, and or Alan Turing making a computer. It was really tough to imagine what the end state of that would be. We still can't imagine what the end state of that will be. But these things follow exponential curves. We underestimate the exponential curve at the beginning. Sorry, we, we overestimate at the beginning of where that's going to be, and we underestimate where it's going to be at the end. So uh, I've tried always to say I am inspired by what's going to happen. We should be so proud of what we can do for the next generation if we work really hard. And we should never overpromise in the short term, and we should overdeliver in the long term. Eric Lander of the Broad Institute, really amazing to be able to pick his brain. Yeah, I mean he's a you know an amazing scientist. I took biology from him when I was an undergrad at MIT. Really? Yeah, and uh, and got a C. Oh no! Oh no! I deserve C. <laughs> well, that's it for us on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman, and I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. <laughs>